I would ask that you would take God's Word in your hands and turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. And uh, as we have been telling you, uh, we're starting a new series that we've entitled uh, Three Wise Women. And we're going to be focusing our next three messages on the lives of Elizabeth, Mary, and Anna. We'll be doing that, of course, this week with the life of Elizabeth, Mary, uh, next week, and then Anna during our services on uh, Christmas Eve. And so we look forward to what God is going to teach us because uh, we know women are far wiser than men are. Amen? Wow, I didn't hear any men say anything when I did that. But today we look at the life of Elizabeth, uh, who gets the events of the Christmas story uh, started, uh, gets it rolling with the announcement of the pregnancy of John uh, the Baptist, and uh, this would be no ordinary pregnancy, it would be one uh, that would bring forth no ordinary child. And today I want to look at Elizabeth, and I think it's, um, God doesn't ever have ironies, but uh, I put this message together Uh, Thursday night, and the title of my message is Hope Amidst Hopelessness. I would have never thought that the events of Friday uh, in a Christmas message would connect so well with our message this morning, and yet uh, God has allowed us to uh, hear a message of hope this morning amidst a time of great hopelessness as a nation. And so let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 5. Uh, through 17, then I'm going to jump to verse 24 and 25, and then jump again to verses 39 through 45 uh, this morning. So I'll, I'll remind you of where we'll be at, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Scriptures. And so Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah on the, of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Move your way down to verse 24. After these days, uh, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and five months uh, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And then move down to verse 39, where we pick up the story again. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of our Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and I pray that you would open our hearts to your word this morning. Lord, we come uh, to church this morning with saddened hearts as a nation. Lord, the evil that was uh, set forth and put into motion through the mind of a madman, Lord, grips our hearts. The loss of little children and their teachers, Lord. And Lord, how could a, a man go after his family, Lord, and then go to a school and unleash his terror? Lord, 
it's not hard to see for many that this is a world of hopelessness. And yet, Lord, we are gripped not simply by hopelessness, but that amidst all of this carnage and all of this terror, that there's hope. There's hope and there's an answer to all of the trouble of sin and division and strife and anger in this world. It's the same hope that Elizabeth had when she was praying for a child and it wouldn't come. It's the same hope that she would experience that in advanced in years, Zechariah, doing his duty as a priest father, would hear from you through an angel that he was going to have a son. It's the same hope that a teenage mother had when she heard from Gabriel that she was going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. Lord, it's the hope that you preached while here on earth. It's the hope that you left us with, with the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we have hope in this world. And though it may seem dark and dim this morning, we know that dancing and joy comes in the morning. So Lord, open our hearts to the hope that we have amidst whatever disappointments and troubles we may be facing so that we may look to you and trust you in our time of need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As we embark on this new uh, Christmas series, it is far too easy for us as Christians to make the first Christmas a story that looks like it comes right off of the screen of the Hallmark Channel, where everything looks fine and everything looks wonderful and everything looks like a Vermont holiday scene. As if Thomas Kincaid has come and, a, uh, and painted a beautiful portrait of a snow-capped uh, uh, village in the hills where people are all nestled in their warm homes with chimneys blowing with smoke. And we begin to think that all was well when we come to this first Christmas season. But I want you to notice in our text this morning that all of the events of that first Christmas fall under a heading that Luke tells us in verse 5. Notice in verse 5, he tells us, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. I want to stop there for a moment. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. What, what is Luke telling us there? These were not the best of times, especially for those who lived in first century Palestine. Israel was being led by a man who was strong, who was capable. Herod was a man that many would say would make a great king, a great man to oversee a province or a nation. But history tells us that Herod was far from a perfect man. In fact, he wasn't even a good man. He was a sinister man. He was a sinful man. Herod was a man who ruled with an iron fist, and he would go on to kill not only family, but foe alike. The days of Herod don't seem too far from our days this morning in the year 2012. During this time, Israel wasn't on its own. No, they were one of a dozen provinces under the rule of Rome. Change for the Jewish people was impossible because Rome would not let anybody do anything except that which they agreed was good for the people. And as a result of that, the people of Israel must have felt hopeless. But what about the people of God? What about that remnant? What about those people that trusted God and knew God was always in control, that God was always there for his people? 
Those days of Herod, king of Judea, were times of great silence for the people of Israel when it came to their God. We know that since the days of Malachi, since the Old Testament prophets, some 400 plus years, God had not spoken to his people. And all of this carnage and all of these issues and all of these struggles, at least we had God, but even in that time, people would say, where has God gone? Where is God during these times of turmoil? Where is God during these times of great distress? And God remained silent. Sounds like the murmuring of Americans this week, doesn't it? Where is God with all of this evil? Where is God with all of this turmoil? It is like we are living in the days of Herod, king of Judea. It was a time of great despair and distress. And it's amazing that in that time, just as today, many people found themselves hopeless. I found these words from the famed author Max Lucado, who said the following regarding the events of Friday and the storyline of Christmas. Listen as I read it. The world sure seems dark today. I'm looking for all the silver linings I can find, but they seem to grow dimmer <clears throat> each day. What am I to do with these killings, Lord, these children? Lord, the innocence that was violated, the raw evil that was demonstrated. It seems as if, God, the whole world is on edge. They're trigger happy. They're ticked off. We hear from abroad there are threats of chemical weapons and nuclear bombs. Are we really one button push away from annihilation? Your world seems a bit darker this year, this Christmas, Jesus. But Jesus, weren't you born in the dark? Didn't you come at night? Weren't the shepherds night shift workers? The wise men, didn't they follow a star? Weren't your first cries heard in the shadows? For your parents to see their, your face, did they not need the flame of a candle or a fire? It was dark that day you were born, just as it was dark today. We know that there was violence and oppression and jealousy and hatred in the day of your coming. So it is today. In your day, Herod went on a rampage, killing babies. Joseph had to take you and your mom to Egypt to flee the carnage as those who fled from their school today. You were, an you were an immigrant before you were ever a Nazarene. Oh, Lord Jesus, you entered the dark world of your day. Won't you please enter ours today? We are weary of the bloodshed. We, like the wise men, are looking for a star. We are looking for peace. We, like the shepherds, are desiring to kneel at your manger. So this Christmas, Father, we ask that you would heal us, help us, and be born anew in us. Give us the greatest presence and gift that we could have this Christmas. Lord Jesus, give us hope in a hopeless world. As I prayed, God has brought hope, and that hope's name is Jesus Christ. And that is the great refuge we find in a time of trouble. And it's the great hope that Elizabeth found during the great and terrible days of Herod, king of Judea. But I want you to look at this life, and I want you to see that while she lived a righteous life, she also struggled with great disappointment. 
But what I love about Elizabeth, in fact, her husband, Zechariah, is that they were determined to trust God even when the answer was no. So let's look at these three headings this morning. As we look at Elizabeth's life, let's look at, first of all, amidst this hopelessness, she found hope because of her devotion to her God. Write that down this morning, her devotion to her God. In verses 5 through 7, Luke tells us that Elizabeth was a woman who could connect her life and her lineage back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. That's a great heritage. That's something you could uh, stake a claim to. My great, 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 and keep adding greats to that, granddaddy was Aaron. She came from a family of priests. We know nothing of her early life. We know nothing of her own birth. We know nothing of who her siblings were. We know nothing of what uh, took place as a child. But we are told that she got married to a man named Zechariah. He was a priest himself. He was a man who uh, didn't use his uh, full-time job as a priest, but was a part of what the scriptures tell us was a division of Abijah. It was a division of 24 men. So a community of the God-fearing Jews would have temple worship in, in the local community that they were, were at where they would worship and, and they would do their different sacrifices. And he was one of 24 men that would help with that process. We don't know what he did for the rest of the time. Probably some level of agrarian uh, occupation. But we're told nothing about their life in first century Palestine. We don't know anything more than what Luke tells us. Now Luke doesn't see it all that important, but I want you to notice what he does see important this morning. Notice in the text that Luke articulates what is most important to him and seemingly what is most important to God, and that is not what they did with their life in the public arena or in the professional arena, but what they did in the spiritual arena. Before we look at each of these examples, I want you to ask this question of yourself this morning. If Luke was writing a story about you, if he was writing your history, as he did of Zechariah and Elizabeth, what would he write about this morning about you? Would he speak of your business savvy and the great sales numbers that you've brought in this year? Would he speak of a person of great wealth and influence that when you walk into the room, people are listening and they take notice? Would Luke have written about your great uh, athletic achievements, whether in the days gone by or in the gymnasium or field today? How about your schooling credentials? Would they see that you have advanced degrees and that you graduated with honors? We get none of that with Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. They're of no consequence to Luke and to God. But what we see is that they were spiritually mature people. Can God say that about you this morning? Can the scriptures, if they were to write of you, say that you were a godly and upright and blameless individual? They did of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we've learned in Peter, it should be the goal of each of us that when our story is told, when we are dead and gone as Zechariah and Elizabeth are, that our life, our, our, our ways, our testimony would speak praises not to who we are as a people, but our allegiance and our dependence on God and God alone. I want you to notice what Luke says about Elizabeth. 
She was devoted to God, and this was seen, first of all, how she dealt with her sin. How she dealt with her sin. Notice the text, it tells us. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a, a priest named Zechariah. We learn that he has a wife, and her name is Elizabeth. And in verse 6, it says, And they were both, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God. Let's just stop there for a moment. They were righteous. This word righteous is the word amemtos in the Greek. It is the same root word that we would have learned about two weeks ago in 1 Peter. First, uh, Peter uses this verse, or I'm sorry, this word in verse 19 of chapter 1. When he speaks of Jesus as the righteous lamb without defect and without any blemish. Wow. The same adjective that's used of Jesus being the spotless lamb is the word that's used of Elizabeth and Zechariah. That's pretty amazing. But before we start building statues to Elizabeth and Zechariah, before we begin to think that there's something greater than we are, we have to look at Scripture and be reminded that Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, including Zechariah and Elizabeth, and fall short of the glory of God. And we need to know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were just like us. They were sinners. But what made them righteous? The easy answer is grace. Grace made them righteous. The same grace, the same amazing grace that was poured out on, on you and me, that was given freely to us, that positionally made us righteous before God. But Luke gives the idea that this isn't simply their position, but their righteousness was their practice. You see, a lot of us put a lot of weight in our position of being righteous because we know if we've asked Christ into our lives, then we're saved and we're made righteous. But Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't living off of yesterday's grace. They were living in the grace of the here and now. They were righteous in all that they did. So what does that mean? What does that mean that they were righteous? How could these two people who were sinners be called righteous simply just because of God's grace? Well, that's the big part of it. But it also involved the way that they dealt with their sin. Zechariah and Elizabeth no doubt had all kinds of sins, just like you and I did. But what Zechariah and Elizabeth did that Luke speaks about is that they dealt with their sin. They recognized that when they fell to sin, that if they were to confess it, even though they didn't know that Bible verse, if they were to confess it, that God was faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, this is great solace for me as a sinner. As one who fails, it warms my heart to know that I can be righteous in the here and now if I just have short lists with God, if I make sure that I deal with my sin. But what it's going to mean is, number one, what I believe Zechariah and Elizabeth did, was number one, they hated sin. Do you hate sin this morning? Do you hate it more than life itself? The great reformer John Owen wrote a whole long pamphlet that we should mortify sin. Hate it to the core. Do you hate sin this morning? Or is that sin that you have, that little pet that you have, that you just go and, and, and pet and, and love and, and feed and care for? Or is it something that you despise? To be righteous, we have to despise sin. Number two, to be righteous, we need to be able to flee from temptation. There's no doubt that Zechariah and Elizabeth 
were tempted in many ways just as we are and they had to be ready to flee from temptation because we can't be righteous and keep falling to temptation over and over and over again but here's the great hope that even when Zechariah and Elizabeth fell to sin they were quick to resolve that asking forgiveness seeking to make right the relationship with God and as a result they were righteous before men as well because when you're right with God you're gonna be right with other people what great hope this morning of a people if you're like me who filled with sin who need God's forgiveness that we too can aspire to righteousness and holiness notice we see that they were serious about honoring God and serving him as well notice they dealt with sin and they served notice how she served with her husband at the last part of verse 6 the text tells us they were walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of God I want you to see a couple things this morning first of all we are told of these people that in verse 7 they had no child we'll get to that but at the end of verse 7 it says that they were advanced in years the King James Bible probably does the best job of translating this word when it says that they were stricken with age. Some of you feel stricken with age this morning. It's a great amen. Don Rudd just yelled amen there. <clears throat> Not Eunice, though. You can't say that yet, Eunice. The idea there is that they were old not just your normal old they were really old after a good night's sleep Zechariah and Elizabeth would get out of bed and everything would crack they were sore they were ready for a nap by the time they got to the bathroom in the morning they were old people they were stricken with age now nobody would have ever thought it a bad thing had Zechariah and Elizabeth just said you know we've served God for a long time We've devoted our lives to him, and now we're just going to sit back and coast for the last chapter of our life. I mean, who could blame them? They've served the Lord. In some ways, God really hasn't come through for them, and so they deserve a break. But notice what Luke says about them. They were walking blamelessly. That's in the present tense. That means even as they were old, in their old age, in the present moment of their oldness, they were continually and perpetually walking blamelessly. What a reminder for us of all ages. That no matter where we're at, no matter how old we are, while our service and our ministry may change as our bodies begin to suffer the effects of aging, that all of us are called to holiness no matter we are 10 or 100. You and I are called to an ongoing and continual walk of holiness. Never does the Bible say that you and I can live on retroactive service or holiness. You cannot hold yesterday's holiness in a savings account so that later in your life when you're wanting to have an unholy day that you can withdraw on it. You see, some of us are living in the glory days of a life gone by. When we were on fire for the Lord, when we served the Lord with vigor, and now today, through disappointments, through troubles and trials, we say, we'll let another generation do that. We'll let someone else pick up the slack. I've done my duty, and it didn't get me very far. Elizabeth and Zechariah had one desire in life, it seems, and that was to have a child. God does not answer it, 
And they could get disappointed, and I'm sure they did. They could have become discouraged, and I'm sure they did. But that never kept them from walking the life of holiness in God. And it shouldn't keep us from it. There's no excuse. We are called each and every day to be holy, as Peter tells us, just as our God is holy in heaven. I want you to write down two things about this service. Number one, it was done well privately. They served well privately. Notice the text says that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments. The word commandments there speaks of their personal <clears throat> obligations to God. They served God well as Elizabeth and Zechariah in their home, in their marriage, in their worship to their God. They did what they were called to do. God said, I want you to live upright and holy lives. They did that. They did that because God had called them to that. They served God well privately. But notice they did that publicly as well. We see that Luke gives us two words, the commandments, that they served God well with regards to the commandments and walked blamelessly in all of his statutes. Well, what's the difference? Statutes were the things for, if you will, public consumption. One of the statutes that we have, if you will, is to gather together for public worship. We do this together, it's corporate. It's not done privately. My preaching, my use of my gifts is not done privately, it's done publicly. It's gonna be hard for me to preach without a group of people to preach to. This is my public service, but here's the problem. While Zachariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in their private walk with God and their public walk with God, can I tell you, as a preacher, I really do a good job here on stage, and sometimes I really blow it when I'm by myself and you're not around. It seems amazing how holy we are when Sunday morning rolls around, but on that random Tuesday morning, it's amazing what comes out of our mouth, isn't it? The thoughts that come to our head, oh, it's easy to serve God when everybody else is watching, when we're all dressed up, ready to serve Him. But when it's in the random part of the week, it is hard to do it. Zechariah and Elizabeth serve God well both ways. Again, what a calling to us as God's people. We need to live by this model. And yet it's so commonplace in our world today to find one of them as being done and yet not the other. So here we are. We have this great couple. They're honoring God even though they're old. They're doing all that they can to serve God. We tend to buy into this concept when we get this far into the message that because they're great people, because they're doing great things, that God doesn't allow bad things to happen to them. God doesn't allow hardships and troubles to come. These are the people that the Hallmark movies are made of. These are the nice, warm and fuzzy people who have done everything right. And in the end, everything is all good for them. But we see that even though Elizabeth served blamelessly, she also had great disappointment in her life. She had great disappointment with life. Right when you think everything is good, you got this great couple, they're serving God blamelessly in all the commandments and all the statutes of the Lord, Luke drops a bomb. Notice the next word, but. This word takes us from great excitement, anticipation, to the depth of despair. What do you mean, but? 
What do you mean the story's going to change? They're doing so great. Why would we change the story? But it tells us even though all was good spiritually, it doesn't mean that everything was good. I love how honest the scriptures are. I love that it never paints a picture that looks good on paper and then in real life doesn't add up. I love it that we are told that no matter how holy and righteous we are, that discouragement and disappointment are not immune when it comes to our lives. When we honor God to the best of our abilities as Elizabeth did, to have great disappointments come. Some of you have raised children in the fear and admonition of the Lord only to watch them as soon as they leave your home to walk away from the Lord. Others of you have desired to honor God in your marriage only to have your spouse say, I'm out of here. You have served your company well, your employer, you have been diligent for him or her only to receive at the absolute worst time a pink slip. You've gone about serving your God, doing all that you can to honor him in every way only to head to the doctor for a routine health checkup and hear the words inoperable. Jesus reminds us, he reminds us, Village Bible Church, that in this world we're going to have trouble. In this world we're going to have difficulty. It doesn't take us long to know that holiness doesn't keep us from the troubles of this world because Jesus was personified holiness. There was no sin found in him. He was walking and talking a life that honored God in every way. And the only thing that, the, that this world brought him was pain and suffering and alienation. What makes us think our life would be any different? And so we see that disappointment is a part of our life. And it's true for the believer and unbeliever alike. There's no way around it. So what caused this Elizabeth to have such disappointment? Notice there are three that I want you to look at quickly this morning. Number one was infertility. Infertility. Notice verse 7 says, but they had no child. They had no child. Here was a husband and wife. They loved God. They served God well, but they were without children. This is a great disappointment for many today. Month after month trying to conceive can lead to great disappointment. Listen to the words of discouragement that come from a woman struggling with infertility. For seven years, my husband and I have been watching. We've been waiting. We began the process of beginning our family back in 2006. We were hopeful that our family would grow sometime in that year. We slowly watched as the monthly calendar turn, uh, page turned. Then we changed the calendar to a new year. We have grown weary with all of the waiting. During that time, I have grumbled, I've complained, I've blamed God far too many times to count. I've longed to be on my knees on the carpet of our living room floor looking eye to eye with my own baby. I've also been on my knees in prayer, repenting of my self-righteousness in the hope that God would hear and answer my prayer. Will there be a little one who will bring joy and laughter into our home? Why will we continue to suffer the long hours and days and now years? Can we not know that God will answer us? Can we not know that the Lord's timings and ways are best even when we don't understand them? 
There's no doubt that there are many in this place who have struggled with infertility, whether desiring the first child or a second or third or fourth child. This is something that grips the heart of both men and women alike. Why? Because children bring life. Children remind us of a future. It's very hard to look in the eyes of a child and not see hope. This is what makes this week's activity so absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, it's understandable that we as adults may die because of carnage, but how can you look in the eyes of a little child and end their life? It is unspeakable to think of such things. And our nation mourns because of the innocence that was lost, the hope that was lost. Children bring that. That's what Elizabeth wanted. That's what some of you are desiring today in the quiet pain of your heart. But infertility kept her from that and it keeps you from that as well. But with the infertility came what I would say is insinuations. Now Luke tells us that Elizabeth is barren. And that's not something new. Sarah, Abraham's wife, could not conceive a child for a very long time. Rebecca and Rachel, wives of many of our patriarchs, could not. Samuel, Samuel's mother, Hannah, would, would cry and plead with God for years before he would be born. And in each of these instances, great discouragement and despair would come. And we see that this infertility led to insinuations because what was common in the life of a barren woman was the insinuation of sin. And I want you to know, Luke really gives a zinger in the text. I wonder if he does it for a fact and God saw it fit to be in scriptures. But notice what he says. They had no child. And you know whose fault it was? It wasn't Zechariah's. It was hers. Some of our ladies are dealing with that weight right now. It's my fault. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do what it seems that every other woman can do? Why is it there are just countless teenage pregnancies that are unwanted? Why are there so many unwanted pregnancies here in America? And yet all I want is a child. I've served you, God. I've done what you've asked me to do. Why can't I do it? Why does it have to be put on me? And Luke puts it square on Elizabeth's shoulders. She's barren. And with that, in Old Testament times, because of misapplication of Deuteronomy 7, when God speaks of the blessings and curses that will come to a nation that honors Him or dishonors Him, and because of a misapplication of that text, the insinuation of sin was placed on a woman who was barren. So it's one thing not to be able to have a child. It's another to go into public settings and be viewed as a sinner. Remember, Elizabeth was one who God says, man, she's righteous. She's noble. She walks blameless and have the rest of the world snicker and gossip. Well, I wonder what she did when she was a child. I wonder what she did when she was a teenager. It many times meant that they were... Um, sexually unfaithful prior to their marriage. Think of the insinuations as a woman throughout your entire life. You've walked blamelessly before your God and to have that carried around a sin that no doubt she did not commit. 
to be stuck to her under the cynical eyes of others. We know that this is true. You say, Tim, are you reading into the text? No, look at verse 25. It tells us in verse 25 that when she is, when, when a baby is conceived in her, when her womb is opened, verse 25 tells us that she says, now five months pregnant, she's kept herself hidden. Why does she keep herself hidden? She does so, I believe, and most commentaries would agree, because who would believe an old woman? After all these years, she shows up to church. Hey, guys, I'm pregnant. Are you kidding me? The old woman's lost her mind. And so for five months, Zechariah keeps her hidden, keeps her cooped up in the home so that more insinuations won't come until they can't deny it. She walks in a little bit more like this. Wait a minute. Is it, what's going on there? There's something going on in your belly. You're with child. And notice what this brings. It says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She had to deal with the snickers of others and their gossiping of sin. She had reproach on her life. Some of you feel that way as well this morning, as if you've done something wrong. There's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, that barrenness means it's a result of sin. Hold your head up high. The Bible speaks over and over again to the barren woman that great will her day be in paradise where her tears of wishing and wanting a child will be wiped away by our great God and Father in heaven. So here's the dilemma. It leads to insignificance. You say, what do you mean? Here's a woman who's got a huge problem. And you know what's bad about huge problems? Is usually our problems are bigger than ourselves. And who are Zechariah and Elizabeth? They're just a bunch of people living in the days of King Herod. He was a man of significance, but not Elizabeth and Zechariah. They live in the hill country of Judea. And they're discouraged, and they're disappointed, and they're struggling. Who are they? Who's going to listen to their cries? Who's going to listen to them? You see, what happens is, is disappointment turns to discouragement. I want you to just practically write some things down for you here. I want to help you understand why disappointment turns to discouragement. I'm going to do it very quickly. But the first reason why dis uh, disappointment turns to discouragement is fatigue. You've got a big problem in your life. Let's just deal with the issue of infertility. Let's deal with Elizabeth's issue. Month after month, this is going to be the month. This is going to be it. You know how tiring that is? Let me speak from the bottom of my heart with permission of my wife. We have desired for another child for now four years. Month after month. This is going to be it, only to find out it's not. You know how tiring that is? You know, we don't want anything bad. We want another child to, to love and raise in a godly home. It doesn't happen. And you know what fatigue brings? Frustration. It brings frustration. What's the problem? Why isn't this happening? Why won't this just... This is what we're supposed to do. We're to be fruitful and multiply. Why won't it happen? We get frustrated. Frustrated with each other. Frustrated with God. Frustrated with doctors. It won't happen. 
You've been there, I'm sure, many of you. And then frustration leads to the feeling of failure. What's wrong with me? Why does it seem everybody else has got it put together, but I don't? What's my problem? What's my issue? And then it leads to fear. God must hate me. God must be teaching me some very terrible lesson. My issues are bigger than even my God because He could fix it and He won't. Or maybe He can't. I don't know if this is what Elizabeth dealt with, but she's a human. And no doubt these issues came up and disappointment turned to discouragement. But here's the rest of the story. In verse 13, we're told that an angel comes and speaks to her husband while he's doing his priestly duties. And he tells him, Gabriel tells him that he's going to have a baby. And it's going to be through his wife, Elizabeth. Can I tell you how righteous Zechariah was? Well, way back in the days, if your wife was barren, the, the dude was a moron, and he would go and find another woman to conceive a child. Nowhere does it say that of Zechariah. Just because God says no doesn't mean that you become God and you make that decision. And never in those times, even when our great father Abraham did it, it was sin in the eyes of God. But Zechariah doesn't. And God blesses that holiness with a child. His name's going to be John. In verses 26 through 38, we are told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is visited by Gabriel. And that she has been now told that she's going to be giving birth to Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the one who would come and be the consolation of Israel. And so we pick up the story in verse 39 where we're told that Mary comes and visits Elizabeth to tell her of the miracle that is in her womb. Even though Mary was a virgin, I want you to notice a couple just points that I want to take away from Elizabeth's life amidst her waiting and disappointment and even when her prayer is answered here's the thing that we see of Elizabeth that she had a determination to trust God if you can pull anything from this message today have a determination have a dogged determination to trust God when disappointment comes you see in order for us to have hope you and I must have a robust trust in our God. Elizabeth remained faithful to her God in her times of waiting because she could say that whether God gives or takes away, that blessed is the name of the Lord. To be able to do that, she had to trust. She had to trust that God's ways were not her ways, that God works all things out for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. You know, in our world, it's easy to lose trust. To think that God is too busy, that God has lost His control on creation, but the believer who builds his faith on Scripture is reminded that God is the one who accomplishes His plans always, and that His ways are always higher than our ways. So we have a choice, as Elizabeth did. Are you, in your times of disappointment, going to trust God? Or are you, like Job's wife, going to say, I would rather curse God and die. That's your choice. And there's no in-between ground. And so we see with just a couple minutes that I have left, a couple things that we see in Elizabeth. Number one, her determination to trust God allowed her to stay committed instead of giving up. 
Elizabeth was able to do something that all of us would be good to follow. Her, without knowing it, lived out Romans 5.3. Just write that passage there. Romans 5.3 tells us that in our sufferings, we should rejoice. Now, at this point, we have no idea. Elizabeth doesn't know this. Paul may not have even been born yet, or if he was, he was a young child. And Elizabeth, never in this passage do we see her belly aching or murmuring. She doesn't speak will of others. She doesn't blame God. She doesn't even, it seemed, try to make deals with God. But it seems she rejoiced in her suffering of infertility. How often does trouble come in our lives? And we are so incapable at times of rejoicing with God. Paul reminds us that our suffering produces endurance. And boy, did she have endurance. An older woman now serving God faithfully, even though there was no answer to prayer. This endurance allowed what Paul said in Romans 5.3, that it would allow her to have character, and she was upright in all she did, and that it then gave her hope. Maybe not so much hope in a child, and God doesn't promise that. Just because it happened for them doesn't mean it'll happen for Tim and Amanda. It doesn't mean it'll happen for someone else, for you and your disappointment. But here's what they knew, that God is still on his throne, and God is a God who loves and cares for us deeply. So she could trust, and she was able then to obey. Number two, she was able to come alongside others and encourage them. Mary visits Elizabeth. Mary is encouraged by Elizabeth. She's able to rejoice with Mary, to bless God for the blessing of Mary's upcoming birth. Elizabeth is able because she's elated as to God's plan and what he is doing to give her a spirit-filled word. She enables the child in Elizabeth's belly to leap with joy at the hearing of the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what she's able to do is comfort Mary, a teenager who is in uncharted waters, to know that she's not alone, that God is up to something great. And she was the only woman that would be able to do it to know where there seemed to be no way that God had made a way. It's a good word for a virgin who had never known a man to know that God could conceive in her the long-awaited Messiah. You know, God has a unique way of doing that for us as Christians. Write this passage down. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 reminds us that we go through times of suffering for one very important reason, that you and I may be a comfort to others. God enables us to go through incredibly hard times so that when others around us find themselves in those moments that we too can comfort them in a time of need. I saw that this last week or last two weeks my mom came to the uh, Christmas dinner and during the message uh, there was some talk of losing a loved one. And a woman was there who recently lost her daughter, a college-age girl. And she was weeping at the table. She had come with Naomi Etchison. She did not know the Lord. And just two tables over was my mom, who had lost a child some 20 years ago. They spoke for almost an hour in our gymnasium. Now, would my mom ever want to give up another boy? No. But because of it, she was able to comfort another in need. And so are you. What disappointment, what trouble has come? God is calling you to comfort those around you. 
to help them and encourage them along the way. That's what Elizabeth did. And then finally we see she was content to play second fiddle. I saw this in the text this week, and I'd never seen it before. This is one thing that you run into as preachers when you preach something over and over again. This is not my first message on Elizabeth, I don't think. And yet I was struck with this. Think of you're the woman, you have this great story to tell. I can't wait till I can tell someone five months I've been all by myself, hidden away. I just want to tell someone I'm pregnant, the old lady's pregnant. To have a teenager come and say, you think that's great? I've never been with anybody. And I've got the Messiah conceived in me. And Elizabeth doesn't get angry. She doesn't compare herself. She says, praise God. Who am I that the mother of the long-awaited Messiah and Savior would come to me? It is so easy for us when bad things happen and even when good things happen for us to recognize that God is still at work. Can I tell you, it doesn't just stop with Elizabeth, but Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is great. But right when John the Baptist is hitting his stride, right when everything's going for good for John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, I must decrease so that he can increase. Who are you called to play second fiddle to this Christmas? You're going to fight for that position of first place? Or are you, like Elizabeth, going to say, you know what? God, if I'm the last person in the last chair, I'm just glad to be a part of your kingdom. I'm just glad to be able to be called a son or daughter of God. Elizabeth got it. And she was able, because of her devotion to God, even amidst the disappointment in life, and her determination to trust God, she was able to find hope in a time of great hopelessness. I pray you'll find that this Christmas as well. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you, Lord, for this time in the Word. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, it's not very often we get to respond in worship. Lord, I pray that amidst our disappointed hearts this morning, we would respond in worship and thank you with a determination to trust you this morning amidst whatever we may be struggling with. We would honor you and walk blamelessly with you in everything that we say and do. So Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what your plan is and that your ways are very much higher than our ways. Let us submit ourselves to those plans and purposes we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.